This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. At its zenith, the Mughal Empire stretched from Gujarat in the east to Bengal in the west, from Lahore in the north and Madras in the south. It covered the whole of present-day northern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan and Bangladesh. It became famous for the Taj Mahal, the Kohinoor and the Peacock Throne. In 1631, a Dutch naturalist, Johannes de Light, published his account of the vast empire. Quote, The nobles live in indescribable luxury and extravagance, caring only to indulge themselves whilst they can in every kind of pleasure. Their greatest magnificence is in their women's quarters, for they marry three or four wives, or sometimes more. End quote. But were they really the opulent despots of European imagination? If so, how did they maintain such a vast territory? And to what extent was the success of the British Raj a legacy of the Mughal rule? With me to discuss the Mughal Empire is Sanjay Subramaniam, Professor of Indian History and Culture at Oxford University, Susan Strong, Curator in the Asian Department of the Victoria and Albert Museum, and Chandrika Kaul, Lecturer in Imperial History at St Andrews University. Sanjay, the... Official dates of the empire are from 1526 to 1857, and throughout those 330 years, a single lineage of 19 emperors ruled. The first of these was Babur. Can you tell us a little about him? Babur was um, a descendant of uh, Timur, of uh, Tamerlane, and of Genghis Khan, so he actually came from a lineage of uh, uh, two great conquerors. He spent uh, the greater part of his life actually looking for a kingdom, and started out from Central Asia, spent a number of years wandering around, and then eventually came to Kabul, settled in Kabul for a while, and then in 1526 managed to conquer North India from an existent sultanate and lived to rule that uh, sultanate for about three years. So it was a very brief uh, period uh, so far as he was concerned in India. When you say looking for a kingdom, it sounds rather romantic. In fact, the whole thing is rather romantic, a descendant of Genghis Khan and Tamerlane the Great coming out of Asia. But he it wasn't just what... He must have had an army or something. I mean, how many men did he take with him? What were the conditions of the time? We're talking about the early 16th century, a period about which we know a lot about our own history. What's, what's going on there? Well, um, what was going on was uh, that a number of new states were being founded in the area. These other people were making space for themselves, and someone like him didn't have that much margin for manoeuvre. So he was, in a way, sort of pushed further and further south by the fact that other people were competing with him in this this kind of enterprise. Now, he, um, at various points in his life, had uh, different sizes of entourage. It must have come down to very small numbers at the lowest points of his career. And well, well, can you give us some idea of the numbers? We're talking about we're sort of talking about a warlord, aren't we? Taking we're talking arm. about a warlord who probably, when at the time that he moved uh, into into Kabul, must have had some uh, some thousands of people with him, but not much more than that. And when he moved into North India, must have had some tens of thousands of people. And so there, he's got to feed them. He's got to give them places to loot. He's got to give them territory. Indeed. So, he's uh, he's got to expand because of the army, his, his own pri- private army, I presume, pushing him. Yes, that is one reason, but I, in a way, uh, in a way, the problem is uh, one of the heritage, which is that if you have this heavy heritage of being a descendant of uh, Tamerlane uh, and, and Genghis Khan, and there are a number of these people around who are usually called Mirzas at this time. That's the kind of general title that they bear. Uh, many of these people are trying to do this. 
And it's almost like it's just a family business. If you've got Tamburlaine and Genghis there, you've got to go off and conquer parts of the West as far west as you can get. Yes, it's, it's a little bit of that. Um, well, perhaps it's not uh, quite so dissimilar as that to European history in this period. I mean, if you were, say, a Habsburg prince, you also had uh, you know, ideas of this kind, perhaps through marriage alliances, perhaps through conquest. So it's perhaps not so peculiar uh, an Asian or a South Asian phenomenon. I think it's a, probably a somewhat more general phenomenon. And wandering princes are not unknown. Charles II spent some part of his life as one. Uh, James II spent the end of his life as one. He kept a diary, didn't he, Babu? And he est- so we established very early on in the 1520s that this, this, uh, this dynasty is going to be remarkable in many ways. And one of the ways it was remarkable, of course, was his artistic legacy. And artist- well, um, what, what does his diary tell us about him and the time? It's, well, it's not precisely a An diary. autobiography. It's, it's a sort of an autobiography. Yeah. Actually, it tells us precisely about this whole um, question of what it means to be a wandering prince and what it means to come to this thing at the end of his life. Incidentally, he's not all that happy with what he gets at the end of his life. He never was quite um, that happy with India. And he, in fact, often talks about how he misses uh, life in the parts from which he came. He seemed to think, actually, that Central Asia was a rather better place than India. He, was, he came to India as a sort of second choice or a third choice, I think. Susan Strong, Baba was succeeded by his son, Humanian. Uh, what was the empire that he inherited in 1530? Very, very small. It was a corridor of land from Kabul through Lahore down to Delhi and Agra. And Humayun actually managed to lose it very quickly because although he consolidated some of the the military gains, he seemed to give up at the point where he really needed to be pushing forward. So in the end, he actually was exiled and went to Iran and then moved back to Kabul and eventually got the throne back. Um, in 1555. Are we talking about competing kingdoms around here, like uh, provincial states? Uh, again, I just want to get a bit of the geography, there, the political geography work. Prob- it's probably more correct to say that there were centres of power with no fixed borders, so they expanded or contracted according to the ability of the leader of the ruler. So nothing was fixed, and whenever there was a power vacuum, someone would step into it, as indeed the British did later. Um, And so if a stronger leader came up, in this case it was the Afghan Shir Khan, then he was able to push back a weaker person. So Humayun was pushed out to Iran. The important legacy of that, of course, was that Humayun brought back with him two major Iranian painters who then founded a studio which became very important under Humayun's son Akbar. And this started off a, a whole train of, of painting and calligraphy and illustration indeed, which ran through the yeah, next three, 300 years. And this, this was something which was, uh, had been, was a, a preoccupation of Babo and Humayun. Babo was a calligrapher. Humayun carried around with him extremely valuable illustrated manuscripts. I mean, he carried them with him because he had no fixed abode, essentially. I'd like to turn to Chandrika Kohl to talk about his son, Akbar. I mean, there was, given that we're talking about great warrior races and all that, Hermione's death was rather, not comical, but he fell down some library steps at night um, uh, and he left a 13-year-old son, uh, Akbar, uh, who inherited the throne, which seems, again, it seems as if this dynasty, which was remarkable for 19 direct descent, is in danger, but not the case. No, and I think here we need to emphasize the the character, the personal qualities that Akbar brought to the throne. Um, 
I mean, Humayu, as you said, he fell. His he, it was said that he was very uh, inaptly named because Humayu actually means the lucky one. But as it turned out, uh, he proved that he sort of tumbled into life and tumbled out of it. But Akbar was having none of that. In the first few years of his reign, he ruled with the help of a regent because he was uh, too young, Bairam Khan, and he very early on. Um, made, put his mark on the empire. This was an empire which was built on war, on expansion, on military conquest. And Akbar was an amazing war leader. Right from a very early age, he was known to be a very good archer. He loved horse riding and hunting and all the sort of martial sports. Uh, But also, I think this was something that came from within. Um, He had a very clear ambition. He knew where he was going with his expansion. And it was said that Akbar, unlike some of his successors, moved. He did not have a, a fixed abode. He, like the Mongols and the Timurs, moved his army and his capital uh, with him as he went along. So he established a very clear physical presence in the lands that he was trying to conquer and the armies that he was leading. Uh, so there is a sense in which the empire moved with him in a very, you know, very clear uh, offensive. And let's not forget that he managed to conquer not not the whole of India, but a large part of India. Uh, but he ruled for 50 years. And there were setbacks as well. Um, there were rebellions, some fierce rebellions, particularly in the second half of his reign. And so it wasn't a sense that he came, he saw and he conquered. He had to reconquer, reassert throughout his 50, almost 50 years. There's a sense in which Baba brought the uh, dynasty to India, but Akbar turned it in, into an empire. He seems to have been, uh, Susan Strong, to come back to you for a second, he seems to have been an extraordinarily powerful administrator as well. How, did, how was his empire uh, administered? What did he lay down? Well, I think he was an extraordinary personality across the board, but one of the things that he had... The empire was extremely tightly controlled. It was very, very... Um, carefully regulated, every department was properly supervised. And we know this from the history of the reign that was written by Akbar's friend, Abul Fazl, who says, for instance, there were 12 treasuries, three of which were for precious stones, um, jewellery and gold and silver, and the others were for cash receipts. So everything was so carefully controlled that I think that, that added considerably to the efficiency of, of the reign. The feeling that you get is complete grip on every level of the government. Sanjay, do you want to come in on that? Um, I think that, you know, you have somebody who's, who's very charismatic, who surrounds himself with people who are often actually quite extraordinary people as well, such as uh, Sheikh Abul, uh, Abul Fazl, whom Susan mentioned a little while ago, who is this great ideologue, is Indian-born Muslim who... Uh, has um, you know pretensions to uh, to producing a new political philosophy which would be appropriate for the empire so you have that but there's also something else which as an economic historian i would would actually want to emphasize which is that you also have to bear in mind that the second half of the 16th century is a very interesting moment in terms of the the way in which the world economy is developing uh, it's a moment when you know there's a big expansion going on it's the moment when you know the big south american mines, silver mines are coming uh, on online. Um, and part of the consolidation of the Mughal Empire under Akbar is also the stabilization of the monetary system, uh, which is uh, largely silver-based, not exclusively so. And for that to be possible, you actually need to have these connections by which South America gets connected to Europe, Europe gets connected to India. 
and uh, the silver is flowing in from you know the distant Bolivian mine of Potosi into into the coffers of the Mughal Empire. So there is a set of circumstances as well which determine you know that there are possibilities which somebody like Akbar can pick up on. But just a moment, Chanak, I want to go back to Susan for a second. Uh, illiterate though he may have been, although he was, uh, and perhaps dyslexic, we, we don't know, but he did establish the most extraordinary culture at the court. I mean, he set in train this, this, uh, this book uh, on, on one mythical figure, Amir Hamza, is that how you pronounce it? With 1,400 separate illustrations he took 15 years to do. Uh, and so can you give us some idea of the court briefly, Susan? Because we have lots of Europeans saying opulent, exotic, extraordinary, fabulous. Can we do a little bit better than that? Well, it depends where the court was. I mean, Akbar, for instance, built an entire new city at Fatipur Sikri, so you, which still stands today. I mean, there's a lot of the buildings are still left. So you have a, a court which is, uh, has buildings which are very beautifully carved. They're made of red sandstone in on a plain overlooking on a sorry escarpment overlooking a, a plain and within this place there would be carpet weavers artists goldsmiths and the whole court environment would be covered in beautiful textiles woven gold fabrics and so on and into this environment came people like the portuguese from goa who would sell gemstones because goa at the time was the center of the eastern gem trade it had no customs it had no duties it was a very free trade environment we i mean uh, sanjay told us very graphically about it Wonderful notion, sort of silver sweeping up from Bolivia into Europe and then going on to India and the, the diamond mines in India. Is, are they reaching out to the east as well? Is this flow going right through? Is it sort of like a wonderful sort of terrestrial tide rippling across the planet? Indeed. I mean, it's, it's going across in two senses because the Mughal Empire is connected to Southeast Asia. It's connected so much so that one of the major Southeast Asian kingdoms of the period, which is the North Sumatran Sultanate of Aceh, actually in the early 17th century, uh, draws upon the Mughals explicitly as a model. And there's a kind of a text written there which uh, uh, says quite explicitly that, you know, the Mughals are the kinds of monarchs that we wish to be, of course. It's on a much smaller scale, but even so. Chandrika, you wanted to come in. Well, really, picking up from both Sandra and Susan uh, sort of left off, I think it's important to also try and analyse where Akbar's strengths lay, I think he managed to solve two problems that uh, beset, um, you know, say the Tudors as well. One was the problem of the nobility, and the other was a problem of how to deal with religious diversity mm. in India. And I think if I were to pick up on the religious diversity aspect first, uh, Susan mentioned Fateh Well, can we just lay it out? They're Muslims, aren't they? The Mughals are Muslims. And yes. And you've got a, a great number of Hindus and Sikhs and Buddhists and some Christians already quite early on. Uh, Certainly, Akbar's reign, Jesuits yes, were yeah. at his court. I think Akbar both politically as well as personally, was very clear that he wasn't going to use Islam as a weapon of state. So he disassociated the state from Islam. The state did not favor Islam or Muslims over non-Muslims. He abolished, for instance, the poll tax, the jazia, on, on non-Muslims. He allowed uh, non-Muslims to build temples. To They didn't have to pay a pilgrimage tax. But most importantly, I think he led from the front, he established a new religion, 
um, called Deen e Ilahi, which really was his way of trying to say that I'm a tolerant monarch and I'm picking up the best from all different religions. And this is where the state stands. It doesn't favor one or the other. Now, this doesn't mean that he was a bad Muslim. I don't think he ever claimed that. But I think it's giving the lead from the front and therefore and creating loyalty. he took on Hindu loyalty. wives and so on. He so took on Hindu wives. He married a Rajput princess who indeed gave him the heir, the heir to the throne, uh, was the son of the Rajput princess of Amer. So I think he made very clear, both politically and personally, that religion was going to be a neutral factor in the way he was going to rule. Do you want to follow that up, Sonia? Well, um... Because it isn't all wonderful, is it, about uh, No, it isn't all Akbar wonderful. Akbar is a remarkable person, but yes. we're going through his sons and grandsons, and we get to some fairly uh, intolerant persons, not too far in a, uh, not, not, not many generations on. Yes, but, I mean, I think that, first of all, uh, the problem is that you're dealing with a 50-year-long reign, as we were just reminded. And in that 50-year-long reign, there were a number of twists and turns, so that uh, often... What is remembered about Akbar is perhaps the last 20 years, roughly, uh, from the 1580s onwards, where a number of the elements that Chandrika has just been describing come into place. But before that, actually, there were a number of points of inflection, hesitation, and so on. Um, there are moments when Akbar moves fairly close to uh, Shiism. There are moments when he uh, is actually influenced by what are considered to be a heterodox group of uh, very fringe Muslims from Iran uh, called the Nuktavis. Um, and there is a moment uh, when he then founds this um, rather curious order. I'm not entirely certain it's a religion. It's actually it's some kind of a, of a, a sectarian order which is meant to bind people in ties of loyalty to him uh, without actually they're having to give up being Muslims or whatever it is. If we don't, we're not careful. We're going to spend the whole program talking about Akbar, and maybe that's what we should have done. But never mind. I just want to say a little bit more. But can can you give us, Susan? Can you give us some idea of the intellectual, internal life of the court, the ideas, the philosophy, the? Well, I think if you look at the end of the 16th century, which is very much characterised by Akbar's personality, you see an immense interest in other cultures, in other religions, and a great desire to explain different philosophies to different groups who don't understand them. And in artistic terms, this comes out because Akbar um, commissions translations into Persian, the cultural language of the court, um, of texts, for instance, in Sanskrit, so that the Muslims of the court who may not know much about Hinduism can understand it. Whenever an Englishman or a European or Portuguese comes to court, they are quizzed about the ideas that they're bringing with them. And there's, that follows through into artistic techniques and all sorts of things. It's a profound curiosity. What, just briefly, what, are the, what is the Mughal court thinking about the Europeans with their ideas? What are the Europeans thinking about the Mughal court? What are, are they suspicious of each other? Do they say, oh, that's like us, or, oh, they're, they're, not, they're not where we are? What's the interplay there? You would guess that they looked at each other as equally exotic creatures. You know, when somebody walks into the court wearing a... And a, a Jacobean hat with a feather sticking out of it, a lace ruff and a pearl earring. He must have been an object of, of some curiosity, you would think. And equally, when Sir Thomas Rowe, the first English ambassador to the court, arrives, he sees the very structured life of the court as akin to a theatre performance. So he sees the Jahangir as the player king. 
in the theatre. So there's very much Jahangir being Akbar's son. Jahangir is Akbar's son. Mm. There's very much a sense of, at that time, for instance, between the English and the Mughals, of different worlds. They don't understand each other at all, I would say. There's also a profound lack of understanding of Islam, I think, when they turn up and, and see these religions as the Europeans see them as completely heathen. And you have characters like Thomas Coriat who walked to India to be able to see an elephant going into the court and denouncing the Prophet Muhammad as the Antichrist. I mean, it's just a complete lack of understanding of sensitivity, which you find in some observers, not in mm. others. Can we talk a little, Chandrika, about the ideas of monarchy, the ideas of rule, which became a sort of centre, as I understand it, for ideas about governance and the way society should develop. Can we talk about that at, uh, at the time uh, of the late 16th, 17th century? Right. Well, I think it's quite noticeable that from the second half of Akbar's reign, um, people like Abul Fazl and his brother, the poet Fezi, um, had a very conscious way of actually constructing uh, sovereignty, uh, which was based on um, the idea that Akbar and his successors derived their right to rule from God. So there was a religious, um, well, a, a, a sanction that, were, that transcended the humans, human beings. So Akbar was not just um, an ordinary man. He was the perfect man, the universal man. But I think there was also a sense in which the Mughals themselves created their own destiny in the sense that they organized and managed to conquer vast swathes, and therefore their right to rule was derived from their might, from their sheer success. And this argument can be turned on its head uh, when we look at the decline of the, the Mughal emperor or the Mughal empire, um, when we can see that, to a great extent, this was a war state. So an emperor derived his justification to rule from the success that he could claim in the battlefield. So there is a sense in which a combination of both this divine as well as a very practical sense in which their, their sovereignty was based on force and a divine will. Can we talk a bit more, Susan, now about the cultural uh, uh, development to take it over the next couple of centuries, the great buildings that we know about, the Taj Mahal and so on and so forth, the, the jewellery, the diamonds, the miniatures. Uh, um, this was a driven tradition, wasn't it, that, that, that they took it on themselves to develop their architecture. Can you just tell us a bit more? And then European influences came in, mm. as we know, with the Taj Mahal and so on. Well, there are all sorts of different levels. It was very yeah. complex culture, very complex court society. One of the things that, that was very important was the, um, the possessions, the imperial possessions. So anything which had belonged to a predecessor was highly valued and as each emperor died the next emperor would take over the library and very often would write, apart from Akbar of course who couldn't write, but would write his own comments on the manuscripts, the valuations even little comments on who'd painted a particular miniature and so on. And then you have a corresponding a trend where architecture became very much more important because the, the court stopped moving around so constantly. And Shah Jahan in particular added hugely to the fortified cities of Lahore, Agra, Delhi and made a new city within Delhi filled with these wonderful the yeah, yeah, filled with these wonderful white marble buildings inlaid with semi precious stones and further embellish the court setting by adding, for instance, the famed peacock throne that you mentioned, which at the time was actually called the Jeweled Throne, which was commissioned on his accession in 1628 and took seven years to make. 
and was studded with, with the greatest stones in his treasury, which was a treasury, again, that had been built up and added to over the preceding generations. There is very much this idea of an empire also where there's a, a kind of a cult of display. The monarch displays himself. The monarch is painted displaying himself. Um, and this is uh, quite an important part of the sort of rituals of sovereignty, which actually gets stabilized under Akbar. And then it's only at the, you know, you then have these two other monarchs whom we have been talking about, Jahangir, Akbar's son, Shah Jahan, Akbar's grandson, who builds Delhi and the Taj Mahal most famously. And then towards the end of the 17th century, you have Akbar's great-grandson, Aurangzeb, who starts calling some of these rituals into question. But even there, you can see that he's not able to really... Uh, affect uh, such a revolutionary transformation in them. Are we talking to Andrika at a time of when the empire reaches its zenith? It, 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 it is overstretched, and with the European, uh, uh, the Europeans coming in, Portuguese one side, the Brit- British the other, and so on, uh, then it's in most danger. Do we th- see the decline then when it is most, when it is its biggest? Well, yes, and some would argue that you know to to talk about the decline of the Mughal Empire after. Uh, the death of Aurangzeb would be wrong. One one can see the seeds of decline being sown. What in are you talking about here? Yeah. Well, Aurangzeb, 1707 is yeah. when Aurangzeb died. And, you know, common history sort of talk about the decline post-1707. But I think it's it's important to, to reconsider the fact that Aurangzeb's sort of Deccan obsession, the idea that he really wanted to move down south and, and manage to get the entire Indian subcontinent under Mughal rule, really sowed the seeds of a great deal of... Um, unrest because he was away for so long in the south um, the center um, in Delhi sort of the rise of faction at the center created instability um, but there were also other factors which led to the decline I think of the Mughals including I think the rise of regional centers of power, the Marathas the Rajputs the English and the European presence I think there are several aspects to this to one extent, I think the English East India Company in particular filled the vacuum left by this slowly tot- tottering empire. Uh, but they also used the fiscal military system that the Mughals had spent so long building up uh, to further stabilize their own position in, in India. And finally, when Disraeli crowned Victoria Empress of India, he was laying claim to this idea of Victoria being the last Mughal, in a way, this idea of impression, perception of power, of rule, of sovereignty, deriving, as it were, from the Mughals. So so the East India Company actually built up its power through that. From what I've read, it seems that the Raj took over a great deal of the administrative structure set up by the Mughals, uh, principally in the way they ran, divided the tax collecting from the political, and the very, very small number of people that the Mughals had employed to run this massive empire, comparatively small, but had run it so, well, over 330 years, ups and downs, but it was a long time. Now, is that true? Did, did the Raj take this so... Did the Raj take over a lot of the structures that were there, Sanjay? Yes, they pick and choose. They take elements from the Mughals, but then there are also elements they don't pick up. Again, you know, they, they spend a certain time initially thinking that they should use Persian as the language of rule. But then, as we know, uh, in the 19th century, they eventually abandoned that, uh, thanks to Macaulay and others, and think that they should impose English as the language of rule. 
final and I think contemporaries use the rhetoric of the English taking over where the Mughal Empire left off to very good use, I think. And that is undeniably... Contemporaries, now, in, uh, contemporaries in, 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 at the time. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they certainly felt and argued that they were the residuary legacies of the Mughal Empire. Well, thank you all very much indeed. I enjoyed that. I'm sure our listeners did too. And uh, next week I'll be discussing the neurobiology of dreams. There you go. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.